0: I didn't even know what I was doing. I've been hiding out then. I didn't even know what to do. I went several times to turn myself in, and I didn't. I was waiting for my parents to maybe make a statement, tell me to. I didn't know what to do.
1: That was Paul Marriage. Moments after he was arrested by federal authorities nine years ago, inside a Florida Keys motel, five weeks before his arrest on Thanksgiving Day in Jupiter marriage gunned down and killed four people including a six-year-old girl who was asleep in her bed that story is coming up on sun crime state i'm tony holt crime reporter for the daytona beach news journal welcome to sun crime state a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll give you updates on three cases I have profiled on previous episodes, from South Daytona to South Florida. Later, in the third segment, I'll discuss the shooting rampage inside a Jupiter household on Thanksgiving Day 2009. Paul Marriage fatally shot his aunt, his sisters, and his six year old cousin. A fifth victim, the shooter's brother in law, was critically injured but survived after a lengthy rehabilitation. Marriage remained at large for five weeks until someone saw his story and his face on TV during a preview for America's Most Wanted. My special guest for that segment will be Palm Beach Post reporter Andrew Mara. Coming up, I'll discuss a double homicide that took place inside a Daytona Beach apartment building late last week. That was Damon Kemp screaming as he entered a courtroom Sunday for his first appearance before a judge. Earlier during the weekend, he was charged with two counts of second-degree murder. He was in a wheelchair as a corrections officer pushed him from the inmate waiting area into the courtroom. Kemp, who will turn 20 on Thursday, will remain jailed without bail for the foreseeable future. He is accused of shooting and killing Trey Ingram and Jordan Payden, whose bodies were found inside an apartment at Jade Park Apartment Homes at the corner of Dunn Avenue and Jimmy Ann Drive in Daytona Beach. The 19-year-old victims lived at the apartment and Kemp, according to police, was known to them and would sometimes stay with them for long stretches. As Kemp was wheeled into the courtroom, Ingram's mother covered her ears with her hands and put her head down. Other family members of the victims yelled back at Kemp as he kept screaming at the top of his lungs. Eventually, he settled down. Then he leaned forward in his wheelchair and glared at the judge, who then told him he was not granting him bail. Few details have been released about the shootings because police are still investigating it. Here is Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri speaking during a media conference Saturday morning, about 12 hours after the bodies were found.
0: Still, like I said, an active investigation. Give us some time to do what we need to do. Um, I feel quite confident that justice will be served for our victims.
1: Ingram, one of the two victims, grew up in Palm Beach County, and attended school at Santa Luces Community High in Lantana and St. Paul II High in Boca Raton. He played football at both schools. After high school, Ingram, who went by the nickname Ace, had attended Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach for a period of time. A friend of his told me Saturday that Ingram had plans to return to Bethune Cookman to finish his education. Ingram was also an amateur boxer and had been training at the Hagler Boxing Club in Daytona. One of his trainers, Benjamin Wright, also spoke to me Saturday. But it, it was sad for me to get a call at 11:30 last night from the coach and telling me to come down here because Aceman killed. I I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't believe it. You know, um, it was just like he was in my truck a couple of days ago and bring him to the house. And this is what happens. You know, Wright said Kemp had accompanied Ingram at the gym a few times. According to police, Ingram and Jordan had kicked Kemp out of their apartment not long before the shooting due to his erratic behavior. Coming up. I will update you on a few cases I have profiled previously on this podcast. And one of the great things about being the Chief of Police
0: of Biscayne Park is that we are truly a family here. A family who works
1: together and is joined by one common cause, which is the protection of life and property for the residents of the Village of Biscayne Park. That was Raimundo Aticiano, former Biscayne Park police chief, addressing town leaders during a public meeting five years ago, bragging about how his agency closed every burglary case it had investigated with an arrest. In reality, Aticiano directed his officers to frame innocent black men for some of those burglaries. On November 27th, the 53 year old Aticiano was sentenced by a federal judge to three years in prison. According to the Miami Herald, the judge in the case allowed Otisiano to wait two weeks so he could care for his mother, who was suffering from a deadly form of leukemia. Once those two weeks were up, he was expected to report to prison. I profiled this case in episode 56, shortly after Otisiano pleaded guilty to a conspiracy charge of depriving the three suspects his department had framed of their civil rights. They had been charged with burglary without any legal basis whatsoever. According to the Herald story, Otisiano said the pressures of the job are what led to his dishonorable behavior. Biscayne Park is a village made up of 3,000 residents. It is located in Miami-Dade County, about 12 miles north of Miami. The Herald quoted Aticiano telling the judge, quote, When I took the job, I was not prepared. I made some very, very bad decisions. Three former Biscayne Park police officers who had worked under Otisiano pleaded guilty to civil rights violations last summer. All of them cooperated with the FBI in an effort to have their penalties reduced. Two of them received one year in prison, and the other received two years and three months in prison. Atiziano served as police chief in 2013 and 2014. During his leadership, the police department reported clearing 29 of 30 burglary cases, but at least 11 of them were based on false arrest reports, according to the Herald. The story went on to state that one of the men who was framed actually pleaded guilty and was deported to Haiti. Otisiano could have received up to 10 years in prison. Let me also take you back to episode 40 of this podcast, at which time I discussed the 15-year prison sentence of Joe McCaskill, who was found guilty of aggravated child abuse. He and his former girlfriend, Mickey Chardet Lewis, were charged in the death of Lewis's four-year-old son. The boy was beaten so severely by the couple that he died from his injuries. On November 2nd, Lewis pleaded no contest to second-degree murder in the killing of Keandre Coleman, who died in 2013 in the couple's apartment in South Daytona. Based on my experience, oftentimes when a mother is a co-defendant in the sexual or physical abuse or murder of her child, she receives a harsher sentence than her male accomplice even if the evidence shows that the male inflicted most of the abuse. That was the case here. Lewis's sentence tripled McCaskill's. According to an arrest report, Lewis showed little remorse after the death of her son. She told police, quote, I guess I whooped him too much. Lewis, like McCaskill, originally was charged with first-degree murder and faced the death penalty for her crime. Jurors in May were more lenient with McCaskill when they convicted him of a reduced charge of aggravated child abuse. That may have led prosecutors to offer something more lenient to Lewis. On Friday, April 12, 2013, Keandre was expected to go on a field trip with Head Start to a zoo in Sanford. Instead, his mother and her boyfriend kept him home. They set out to punish him for allegedly not knowing his ABCs. They abused and battered him throughout the weekend. Paramedics arrived at the home after 911 was called. By the time they showed up, they found Keandre dead. One of the paramedics testified during McCaskill's trial that the child was already in rigor mortis, indicating he had been dead for a while. Keandre also had shoe imprints on his chest and buttocks. The last case I wanted to update you on in this segment was one I had profiled in episode 36. Former Hernando County Commissioner Nick Nicholson, who was arrested in April on suspicion of paying off an exotic dancer with room, board, and drugs in exchange for sex, wound up avoiding any significant jail time. On November 16th. Nicholson pleaded no contest to prostitution charges and agreed to pay court costs totaling $729. He avoided jail time and his adjudication was withheld, meaning a conviction won't show on his record. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Nicholson attended his sentencing hearing in a wheelchair because he had suffered injuries from a fall earlier that week. The judge in the case said the penalty was appropriate for the 71-year-old Nicholson because he had no prior convictions. Nicholson, through his attorney, announced his plans to fight to get his county commission seat back. Governor Rick Scott suspended the Republican soon after his arrest and appointed someone else to replace him. The allegations against Nicholson came to light in February following a domestic disturbance at Nicholson's Spring Hill home. The husband of the young woman who lived at the house told police that he and his wife were permitted to live there because his wife was having sex with Nicholson a few times per week. The Times also reported that Nicholson allowed the woman to sell sex to other men inside the house. Nicholson was dogged by similar allegations in 2012, but he wasn't charged in that case. He survived any perceived embarrassment from the media stories related to those allegations and won re-election in 2016. If Nicholson does somehow make it back to the commission, he is likely to face a chilly reception. Following news of the arrest earlier this year, virtually everyone on the commission all of whom are fellow Republicans, publicly condemned Nicholson for his behavior and endorsed the governor's decision to suspend him. Coming up, the story of a Thanksgiving Day massacre in South Florida that resulted in a highly publicized manhunt. Paul Marriage wasn't even expected to be at the Sitton home for Thanksgiving 2009 But at the last minute, he called his mother and asked for directions to the home in Jupiter. Hours later, after the meal was over, and while the 35-year-old was sadistically firing bullets throughout the house in an effort to kill as many people as he could, witnesses could hear him muttering the words, I've been waiting 20 years to do this. Marriage killed four people his two sisters who were twins, along with his aunt and his six-year-old cousin. He also critically injured his brother-in-law, who lay in a coma at the hospital for three months. People did not expect the injured man to live, but he awakened from that coma and recovered after extensive physical therapy marriage went on the lam for five weeks after the shooting in early january 2010 his crimes were profiled on america's most wanted he was hiding in a florida keys hotel it was the hotel owner who saw marriage profiled on a preview of the show and called the authorities marriage avoided a possible death sentence by pleading guilty in 2011 to four counts of first degree murder and three counts of attempted first degree murder he was sentenced to seven life terms For most of his life up to that point, marriage showed no signs of violence, depression, schizophrenia, or anything else that would indicate he was capable of doing what he did. Andrew Mara is a longtime reporter for the Palm Beach Post. He covered the Thanksgiving Day rampage in Jupiter and dug into the history of the shooter. I asked him specifically about marriage's mental makeup.
0: I mean, a lot is not known, of course, about the extent of that, but um, from all accounts, he had grown up uh, as a pretty typical kid and was even sort of um, a model kid. He was I think he graduated third in his class from a prestigious private school in Miami. He was on the football team. He was, I think, a place kicker, and he was good enough as an athlete, as a kicker, that he was actually made some videos to send to colleges in the hopes that they might give him a scholarship. Uh, he didn't ultimately. He did not play college ball ultimately, but he was good enough that that was at least within uh, his consideration. So he was sort of this sort of a standout scholar athlete in high school. He was relatively popular at the time, um, according to classmates who we interviewed, and no one would have thought anything like this. And then it seems like more around his around college, as we can tell, you know, some of these mental issues started to uh, to manifest, and he started having real problems with um, obsessive compulsive disorder and depression, paranoia, and I, I don't know exactly how many of these were formally diagnosed but he was taking medication and of course then we started to see the issues with his um, family where he had, he, had, well, he attempted suicide in 1999, he had threatened to slit his sister's throat. And physically lunched at her in 2006. So he had had all these um, issues, and I think the sister had said someone had, and the family had told police or told someone at some point that, you know, growing up they'd all get along fine. Um, it was sort of, a, sort of a loving family, as best as we could tell, and things just took a dark turn at some point when he, I think, when he around the time he turned 20 or thereabouts, and um, it just kept getting worse, apparently.
1: Mara's former coworker Adam Playford, who is now a deputy editor at the Tampa Bay Times, wrote a story for The Post in December 2009, just weeks after the shooting, that showed marriage as a loving person devoted to his family as late as his senior year in high school. While his classmates were cracking jokes and rejoicing over their high school years being over, marriage dedicated his own personal page of the yearbook to his family. He wrote to 32 members of his family, I love you now and will forever. Later in the story, Playford wrote, How did the 17-year-old who wrote, I have been so lucky to be blessed with having twin sisters and being your protective older brother become the 35-year-old who killed them both. As Mara just alluded to, there was a time during Marriage's life as a college student that his personality changed, and that transformation was a quick one. Playford's story revealed that Marriage had suffered a nervous breakdown while an undergraduate at the University of Miami. He was 19 years old when he had that breakdown, and he battled depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder afterward. It was a sudden departure for a young man who had graduated third in his class at Gulliver Prep, a prestigious school in Miami. He was focused, he was fit, he was well-liked, he had dreams of becoming a doctor and no one in high school doubted that he would someday become one. But as he grew into adulthood, he got heavy. He became withdrawn, and his OCD was so severe that he couldn't go long without showering. He took multiple showers per day. He also had a hard time holding down a job. Naturally, he completely gave up on his career in medicine. On the day of the killings, November 26, 2009, marriage made up his mind that he would spend Thanksgiving with his family. He called his mother to ask for directions to the home of his cousin, Muriel Sitton. Sixteen family members were going to be there. After Carol Marriage hung up the phone, she turned to her daughter, Lisa Knight, and said, I hope he doesn't come and kill us all tonight. Lisa then said, Mom, it came to my mind. But don't say that to Dad, because he would get upset that we had such ideas. The home was located in Jupiter, a beach town about 55 miles north of Miami and located in Palm Beach County. The house was owned by Jim and Muriel Sitton. Jim Sitton was a longtime videographer for WPTV, News Channel 5, an NBC affiliate in West Palm Beach. One of the reasons the media were able to get a lot of insight into what happened inside that house and have some sense of the anguish some of the visitors felt is because of Sitten, who was open to them about what he and his wife went through. Marriage showed up late to the Thanksgiving gathering. He remained quiet through dinner, but did not seem to arouse suspicion. Some of the family members, including Sitton, barely knew marriage. He didn't attend too many family gatherings, and due to his behavior, it wasn't like the family was eager to have him around. The dinner itself lasted about three hours. Afterward, people stood around the piano and sang songs. Marriage had everything pre-planned. He had his weapons in the car, fully loaded. It isn't clear the precise order of those who were shot, but Marriage, after walking outside, Reappeared and shot his sisters, Lisa Knight and Carla Marriage. Lisa was pregnant. Both women were killed, as was Lisa's unborn baby. Marriage also shot his aunt, Raymonde Joseph. He also turned his gun to Lisa's husband, Patrick Knight, who barely survived his wounds. Paul Marriage tried shooting his uncle, Joseph's husband. He went down to the floor to cradle his wife, and also to try and stop her bleeding. Marriage aimed his gun at the uncle and pulled the trigger twice, but the gun didn't go off. Marriage reloaded before heading toward the bedroom. He reloaded his gun as he walked to where the six-year-old Michaela Sitton was sleeping. Earlier that night, she had sung for her family. It was a dress rehearsal of sorts for her, because she was performing in a local production of The Nutcracker. The others in the house had scattered. Some of them had run outside into the backyard to get away from the gunfire. Michaela's panicked mother, Muriel, helplessly watched as marriage walked into the bedroom, fired two shots into Michaela, turned to walk out of the bedroom, and then turned back and fired one more bullet into the child. Michaela was shot in the back, hip, and head. Here is Muriel talking to John Walsh, host of America's Most Wanted, recalling what she had witnessed.
0: Anybody who would have seen him that night on Thanksgiving um, would have seen a stark contrast from the pictures that are now being portrayed in the media of a frightened, uh, helpless man. I mean, he came here very confident, very quiet, and shot everybody in cold blood. And then he walked methodically down that hall at the very end to finish what he had started and curved around into my daughter's room, opened her door, and shot her three times and then left and I was able to see him when I was in the house where we were calling 911, I saw a figure walking from that door like this, not running, but just very methodically. It's a haunting image that stays in my mind.
1: During an interview with CBS News, Sitten said he didn't think marriage had originally planned to kill Michaela, but he thinks marriage became consumed with jealousy when he saw the entire family show so much adoration for the girl after her performance. Sitten told CBS News, quote, he tried to snuff out the light. He came into a baby's room. He saw her innocence and he walked in and purposely killed her. After deciding he was done, Marriage drove away in his blue 2007 Toyota Camry. He headed south. He would not turn up for more than a month. Here again is Andrew Mara describing what it was like keeping the story going while Marriage was still at large.
0: This was unique for a lot of reasons, but I think the thing that really drove so much coverage was just. Uh, you know, sort of the fear and the and unease with the fact that he wasn't caught because, you know, usually people are caught pretty quickly or they're killed. You know, this, the nature of what had happened because there's a domestic killing and someone with, um, who clearly seemed, um, Dangerous, just because they seemed unhinged um, in some ways, and then they just a disappeared. And with you know, heavily armed, and with absolute possibility they could kill someone else. For so they were gone for so long without any trace, or at least not that we were aware of. I mean, I, I think police may have had some clues of where he was, but they really didn't. As far as we tell, they really had no idea where he'd gone to. There was the thoughts he might try to leave the country because he had some ties to Haiti, um, but he was also. You know, if it's compulsive and do so, well, how far would he really go if he's afraid of, you know, getting dirty and he takes multiple showers a day? These are some of the things he had, some symptoms he's had over the years. But uh, so he just really vanished about trace, at least as far as the public knew. That whole five weeks just, I think, drove a lot of the
1: interest in the case. The stories about the manhunt wasn't the only part of the story that prolonged the coverage. Even after marriage was arrested, there were other stories to tell. The media were focused on Patrick Knight. At first, it didn't seem like Knight would survive his injuries.
0: Most people covering this, uh, I think, kind of assumed he was going to die eventually, because he was critical. You know, he was kind of hanging on, and I think I remember being told it wasn't looking good for him. And so there's this uh, expectation that eventually it would be five victims instead of four. But, uh, of course, he he did pull through, and uh, we didn't really hear much from him. During that time period, just knew he was in the hospital recovering, and that he was listed as critical for for quite a bit because he was in an induced coma.
1: Knight's recovery was a delicate story to cover. The man was waking up to a very different life. He had to be told that his wife and unborn child were murdered. Mara eventually spoke to Knight, and understandably, it was a difficult assignment for him.
0: When I did speak to him much later, uh, I think it had been almost nearly, I think, I forget when the date was, but it was almost a year after the shooting, I think, when I did speak to him, uh, you know, we, of course I heard about just how harrowing it had been physically and psychologically, because, of course, he found out his wife had died, you know, inadvertently when, he, when the priest, no one was supposed to tell him because they are afraid it would complicate his recovery. Just the grief, and he was so weak he couldn't uh, even cry out loud. And you just think about that and how horrible that must be i mean just it was really uh you know kind of spoke to just how far he had to come had to learn how to walk again how to run again just all the, the basic things it's almost like he had to reset his whole life and of course his you know his wife was gone and she was pregnant when she was killed and so he was expecting to have a family you know, and then all of a sudden he was widowed had to start all over
1: while he was on the run marriage shaved his head he switched the license tags on his car, and while he was in the keys, he kept his car concealed with a cover. Marriage had tried to commit suicide once before. There was the possibility that he would make another attempt after the shooting. He contemplated it, according to reports, but he never did. Marriage had not only purchased four guns in preparation for the killings, but he had acquired $12,000 in cash, so it was clear he had planned to go away for a while. That money was meant to sustain him for as long as possible. In a twisted coincidence, the Thanksgiving rampage in 2009 wasn't the only time the marriage family had to endure a mass shooting. In July 1973, Marriage's aunt, Salwa Marriage Adams, an opera singer, shot and killed her husband in their home. Then she called in her two sons one by one and shot them dead. Days after the mass shooting, Marriage Abrams killed herself by overdosing on prescription pills. Marriage Abrams was the sister of Paul Marriage's father, Michael. Think about that for a moment. Michael Marriage's sister killed her husband and children and then herself. 36 years later, Michael's two daughters are murdered and his unborn grandchild is killed. And his only son is the culprit. Michael's son was caught January 2nd at the Edgewater Lodge in Long Key. As I mentioned, the owner of the business saw Paul Marriage's face on television. The case was profiled on a segment of America's Most Wanted, but authorities were actually alerted after the motel owner saw Marriage's face during a commercial for the upcoming show, which was aired during a college football game. According to the Post, Marriage was actually following the manhunt on the internet. When U.S. Marshals stormed the motel room, America's Most Wanted was either on in real time or had just ended. That's how fast the deputies responded. Amazingly, while Marriage was in custody, he came face to face with a TV camera. He was interviewed on the spot, and that interview aired during the next episode of America's Most Wanted.
0: 18 years of voter tournament. What do you mean by that? I've had. Chronic medical problems What's and mental, mental problems. Yeah. It's been a nightmare. I didn't even know what I was doing. I've yeah. well, been hiding out then. I didn't even know what to do. I went several times to turn myself in. and I didn't. I was waiting for my parents to maybe make a statement, tell me to try to know what to do.
1: Marriage called his parents from the jail after he was transported back to Palm Beach County. His father took the call. But his mother wouldn't. I would play the recording of that call, but the audio is so distorted that it would be impossible for you, the listener, to understand what was said. During the phone conversation, Marriage told his father at the start that he was praying that he and his mother would take his call. His father told him that his mother refused to get on the phone. Michael Marriage told his son quote, "We're totally, totally wounded." An emotional Paul marriage said he understood that and told his father quote, "It's all because of me." The elder marriage then told his son quote, "We have nothing. You have nothing. It's a total nightmare. Our lives have changed forever." During the pretrial phase of the case. Paul Marriage's attorneys seemed to be pursuing an insanity defense. It's always hard to win with that defense, but what made things even more daunting for attorneys was that Marriage had bought all those guns and had withdrawn all that money. There was so much clear-cut proof of premeditation that it would have disproved that he was insane while he was shooting everyone. Marriage did not behave like a person so overcome with a mental disorder that he couldn't discern between right and wrong. Marriage must have realized that. He agreed to plead guilty to seven life felonies. That did not sit well with Jim Sitton. He had told the Post not long after Marriage's arrest that if anyone deserves the death penalty, it is someone who would execute his six year old daughter while she was in her bed. During the hearing in which marriage entered his plea, Sitton literally got on his knees and begged the judge to give the defendant the ultimate sentence. Sitten was physically escorted out of the courtroom.
0: Yeah, and that's totally consistent with his, um, his perception on the case since the beginning. He just he obviously wanted a death penalty for him. I mean, he, this uh, this man who he, I think he barely knew, you know, taking away his uh, his young daughter, his only daughter for, um, no real apparent reason, um, except for his attempt to make his own family feel bad. That seemed to be the, the rationale for doing it. He wanted his parents to feel bad, so he said, "I'll kill this girl who's, you know, distantly related to them." Um, and so, of course, they were so broken by that, um, that and it was that uh, they wanted uh, the maximum penalty for him. And uh, any, any, anything, including this plea deal, they were very upset by the plea deal because, um, for that reason, it didn't give them uh, the chance to see him uh, put on death row.
1: The murders ripped apart the family. The Sittons and the Marriages filed civil actions against each other. Patrick Knight also sued. At least one of those lawsuits was thrown out in 2012. I couldn't find any documentation showing that any of the other lawsuits ended with a settlement or wound up in front of a jury. Marriage, who was 44 years old, is now serving his sentence at Lake Correctional Institute in Clermont, located about 25 miles west of Orlando. Amazingly, Jim and Muriel Sitton still live in the same house in Jupiter where their daughter was killed. Muriel's mother and two cousins also were killed there. As the first Thanksgiving after the shootings got closer, family members urged the Sittons to go out of town and spend the holiday far away from the scene of the crime. But they refused. Here is Jim Sitton telling one of his colleagues why he and his wife insist on staying where they are. People say, how could... How could you be in that house? And the answer is, how could you not? You know, the good memories were for years and years and years. That night only lasted, you know, a few minutes. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss a double murder in Palm Coast that occurred 29 years ago. Louis Gaskin, who was dressed up in a black ninja costume, fired a rifle into a home after seeing an elderly couple through the window of their den. He killed them both and then stole their Christmas gifts. Gaskin would be arrested a month later. A jury would later convict him and sentence him to death. Gaskin remains on death row. My special guest for that episode will be two of the detectives who investigated the case. Join us then.
0: You can find Tony on
1: Twitter at Tony Crime Writer
0: or email him at Tony.Holt at news JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.